But she's like, do, we have to, do I have to stay and listen to you today, Dad? I'm like, I don't think so. You get to leave. She's like, yes. Yes. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's the first Sunday of the month, and so what I like to do the first Sunday of the month is to kind of reset goals uh, for my own spiritual growth. I use kind of a model of discipleship that plays off of Jesus' great commandment to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. I believe that every Christian has a spiritual love language where they connect to God most easily through one of those avenues. Uh, heart being community, soul being prayer, uh, worship, times of introspection, mind being scripture study, and strength being serving or giving. I'm a mind type, but I think that to grow as a disciple of Jesus means to not just grow in the ways that kind of spiritual growth comes naturally to me, but in a kind of a fully orbed holistic way. Because I believe that Jesus wants to be Lord of all areas and aspects of my life, and I need to learn to live into his lordship in every area, especially the areas that for me I'm like, oh, this is just really inconvenient and hard. So um, for this month, I'm focusing on in the area of community. Our small group is meeting this Wednesday. Rosemont small group, yay, anybody? Yay, yay, yeah, it's gonna be great. I don't wanna say it's gonna be the best group, but it kind of is. Uh, it's gonna be awesome, so we're really excited to meet. We're meeting on Wednesday night. Small groups are starting up. Blair talked about that. It's not too late to get involved. Just email smallgroups at ecov.org. Um, in the area of prayer, I've tried lots of different things to arrange and organize my prayer life. A lot of them have been really challenging. The one that I found lately that has been really, really helpful is an app that's free. You can get it for any uh, device. It's called PrayerMate, and it will just help you um, organize uh, your prayers for um, anything. You can categorize them, and then anytime you're on your smartphone, you can just be flipping through and just praying for people and situations as you're going about your day, but I'm going to be focusing on that and kind of my real goal, I don't know if I can do it, but my goal is to load everybody in our directory onto it so that as I go about my day and my week, I'm just constantly praying for you guys and, and you're, all, you're kind of always um, in front of my, my heart. Uh, mine, continue with the Grant Horner reading plan, which is a pretty intense plan. I don't f it's kind of 10 chapters a day. I don't normally do that many because I'm doing so much study to prepare for Sunday. But, um, but I'm do doing that plan because it really pushes me in the different parts of the Bible. And then strength. Uh, I also have small group there because one of the things that I'm super excited about is regardless of the small group um, that people are a part of, I want to push through this model where as a group, you are taking time to creatively think, how can we as a group reach out and bless people within our community? So I don't actually know what my strength goal is gonna be this month, but I want that to be something that comes out of our small group as we meet and talk together and say, what are the, what are the kind of the unique needs in Rosemont? Uh, what's something, what, what can we do to just get the ball started in terms of blessing our, our neighbors in Rosemont this month? So really, really looking forward to that. Uh, just so everyone knows, if you ever want help in crafting kind of maybe a monthly goal-setting thing for your, for your own spiritual walk, please don't hesitate um, to connect with me. I'd love to help you with that. Um, I've found this model to be very, very simple, but very, very challenging because, like I said, there tends to be areas where we kind of automatically find our footing and find a rhythm in our spiritual growth and other areas that, to be honest, we just tend to avoid because it we don't seem to connect with God in those ways, but it's so important to cultivate a holistic uh, relationship with God. So that's going to be what I'm focusing on. So we are starting a new series through the Gospel of Mark this morning. So as we do, let's just take a moment to pray. God, as we 
move into the Gospel of Mark this morning, I would really pray that um, you would use this series uh, in a powerful way for each of us as individuals, uh, within small groups, within our families, um, all the different networks of relationships, God, for us as a church, as we kind of take time to really steep in the life and message and work of Jesus, especially for those of us who um, believe we're maybe more familiar with the Gospels than we actually are, would you um, kind of give us new eyes to see? Would you remove the veil? Would you help us to see you and your Gospel clearly? Would you do a work in us through this series? God, would you guide my preparation so that I know exactly what to put in front of this community every week? And may we all have a, a hunger and thirst for more of who you are and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to start off with a little brain teaser, get the juices flowing. I'm going to give you the first line of a famous work in literature. And if you can identify it, just shoot your hand up and you will win a prize. I don't really have a prize. I'll just affirm you. I'll be like, hey, great job. Um, you can <laughs> shoot, shoot your hand up and we'll go. Okay, so here's the first one. Famous first lines in, uh, in literature. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four Privet Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Anybody? Yeah? Denis, thank you. Harry Potter. Opening line of the entire saga. That's kind of an easy one. Bit of a giveaway. Uh, how about this one? It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Ooh. No one? Uh, clo Clockwork Orange, yeah. not. But it's actually 1984 by George Orwell. That's the opening line to... Um, that really hugely influential work. How about this one? All this happened more or less. We should know this. These are like important words. These are, these are just random books, people. That's Kurt Vonnegut, Slaughterhouse-Five. Come on. Yay? No, you're like, no. Oh, man. Okay, here's a little bit of an easier one. It was a pleasure to burn. Fahrenheit 451, very good, excellent. And lastly, call me Ishmael. Moby Dick, good, excellent. Opening lines normally set the tone for an entire work. Good opening lines do. Skilled authors use opening lines to hook readers in to give them kind of a foretaste of what is to come. And, and what an opening, a good opening line does is it kind of pushes the reader off balance just enough that they kind of wake up and they kind of pay attention to the next few lines and the next few chapters in a way they wouldn't have before. And a good opening line establishes that this is not a book that you can just read kind of passively. Um, this, a good opening line communicates to us that this is a book that's going to kind of bite back. It's going to strike back. It's going to push back. And so you can't just consign this book to like lazy hammock reading on a Sunday afternoon. A good opening line will say, this is a book that you need to be awake for. You need to be, you need to be aware of what you're getting into. This is not a beachside easy read. 
And when Mark opens up his gospel, he does it with one line that you could argue has to stand as one of the best opening lines in, in literature. Forget about the Bible, in literature. Of the 66 books in the Bible, um, there might be some debate. I, I could make the argument for sure that it would be top five opening lines of any of the 66 books in the Bible, but I could also make the argument, I think, after studying that studying it this week, that it might actually be the most provocative, the most powerful, the most subversive, um, the most destabilizing in a really fascinating and interesting way of any opening line in the Bible. Th- this is his opening line. And this is the only thing we're going to study today. Just first verse of Mark. Op- opening gambit. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's it. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, many of us have probably read that, probably very unconsciously. It's kind of like the, the, the shortest possible introduction to the book that you could come up with. It's kind of just, this is where the book's going. This is about Jesus. Okay, now we move on to the, the real stuff. But this line is so provocative and it is so powerful Unfortunately, we have to do a little bit of digging to draw that out because our temptation will be, will be just to rip right through it. In fact, a lot of Bible uh, commentaries that I looked this week don't even actually talk that much about the opening line. They, they, they jump right to the first major section of the book, which is verses 2 to 8 about John the Baptist. It won't even actually talk about verse 1 very much. And I think that's um, a, a terrible mistake because I think Mark, inspired through the Holy Spirit, knows what he's doing. I want to break down all the key words in this opening line because as you're going to discover, with every word that Mark writes, there's a layering that happens. And it's a, it, it, the, the, the sentence kind of builds upon itself right to the end. And for first century hearers, whether Jew or Gentile, Gentile meaning non-Jewish, non-kind of Bible-believing, God-fearing Jew, um, you get to the end of this sentence and everybody in the room is like, whoa, like what just happened? Where's this going? Like this is, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention. Now, if it doesn't strike us like that, initially, let's go through these words and then maybe we'll understand in a small way. I'm not even sure if we totally can understand it, but we'll grasp in a small way how provocative and powerful this opening line was to the early church. Mark begins this line and he begins his gospel with the word arche, which means the beginning. He talks about the beginning of the gospel. But beginning, if you know anything about the Bible, is a very charged word. It's electric because to a Hebrew mind, you talk about the beginning of anything, they're going to go all the way back to Genesis 1 because the whole Hebrew scripture starts with the Hebrew word bereshit, which means in the beginning God created So when Mark says this is a beginning to a Hebrew mind, that's a a really loaded way of starting a book because the beginning of all things happened in Genesis chapter 1. So if this is a new kind of beginning, this isn't just a beginning about creation. That's already happened. This is a story about new creation. This is a story about a new kind of beginning. Something, something has happened, we're going to hear about something which is so revolutionary, you have to kind of reset all of your expectations and assumptions about the way the world is and about how we're meant to live. 
So this is not going to be a story about just kind of a new religious guru, a new kind of static um, list of moral principles or moral imperatives. This is something bigger than that. This is a story of new creation. Um, it's a story about how the world is being remade. And this is important because in Genesis 1, when God says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's implicit to that command is the idea that both the heavens and the earth are important to God and they belong to God. So in this new beginning, this is not going to be a story about how we can escape the world and how we can get out of this world because it's going to hell in a handbasket. This is a story about how God is going to remake the world redeem the world, restore the world, resave the world because he loves it and it's important to him. This is a story about an entirely new way to live as a human being within God's broader story and within God's good but broken world. So RK, charged word, first one from Mark's quill. The next one is the beginning of the gospel, evangelion, is the Greek word there. Another really, really charged word, but not in the same way that we would think about it. When we hear the word evangelion, which, from which we get like evangelism or evangelical church, we're Nelson Evangelical Covenant Church, that's a charged word. Now, for a lot of people in our culture, it's a very negatively charged word. If you were to ask the average person, what do you associate with the term evangelical? Uh, the average non-church goer will probably give you a laundry list of very negative things. So it's a charged word. It's a charged religious term today. It was not a charged religious term when Mark was writing. Mark's writing this book. We'll find out more about Mark in the weeks ahead. I, I don't have time to spend too much time on him today. But he's writing about 70 AD in Rome, in the largest empire that, to that point, the world had ever seen. And in the Roman world, the word evangelion or euangelion in the Greek was used all the time. It actually wasn't really a religious word. It was more of a social and political word that communicated news of a great victory. So when a, when a military general, when a Roman general would win a, a military battle against one of the enemies of Rome, because Rome's empire was constantly expanding, you were constantly pushing into foreign territory and overtaking and Romanizing and Hellenizing um, the, the people groups, what would happen is, once the, uh, remember, just some people are young enough that they don't realize this, there's no internet back then, so information had to travel a different way. And the way that you got information out is a general would call to him an angelos in Greek, from which we get angel or messenger. The general would call an angelos and say, I want you to go to all these uh, villages and cities, and I want you to share with them the euvangelion, that this, that this general has defeated an enemy of Rome. I want you to share this good news, that's what Evangelion means, this good news of a military victory, a victory over the enemies of, of Rome. And so this angelos, this angel, this messenger, would be sent to share this um, good news of the victory of the empire, emperor over his enemies. And they would just go town to town, like a town crier, and say, here's the Evangelion of Caesar. Just to let you know, on the Western Front, we've now destroyed and taken over this barbaric, barbarian tribe, and people would celebrate that. So Mark, who's writing in Rome, Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire, kind of the belly of the beast, the largest, most powerful empire 
the world has ever seen. He uses this same word. He pulls it from its kind of political and more imperial context, and he says, oh, I know a lot of you Romans, a lot of you Gentiles, and Jews too, you've heard about good news your whole life. For decades you've heard the good news about the victory that Caesar brings and how through Caesar, the Pax Romana, the great peace of Rome is being established because Caesar is the Lord and Caesar is the Savior and Caesar is the true king. But I have a different story to tell you. I have a different good news. I have a different news of a different kind of victory. And I have news about a victory that far surpasses anything that Caesar could hope to actually secure. And it was, and, and not just that, but Mark says, not only did Rome not secure this victory, not only did Caesar, was Caesar powerless to secure this victory, the person who did was actually crucified and killed by Rome. The person through whom this victory came was an enemy to Rome. They were put to death. It was someone who was a popular but ultimately crucified rabbi in, who was kind of from the back country of the Roman Empire. So the beginning of an Evangelion, a good news announcement that has nothing to do with Rome or Caesar, but it's about this person named Jesus. Mark says it's through Jesus that a great victory has been won. And that's good news for everybody. In Greek, Jesus um, is the Greekified version of the Hebrew word uh, Yeshua, which is in the English Bibles in the Old Testament, it will be translated uh, Joshua. That's why Messianic Jews call Jesus Yeshua, Mashiach, jo- um, uh, Joshua, Messiah, because that's Jesus' Hebrew name. And the word Yeshua, Joshua, in Hebrew means Yahweh saves, God saves. And so Mark is saying there's, this is the beginning of good news about how God has won a kind of victory. This isn't a victory that's just been won by anybody or the Roman Empire or the emperor himself. This is a victory that has as its center not a human being but God. And it's an imperial victory that's very, very different from the Roman victories that you're used to because the good news of the Roman victories is that they have conquered and defeated, i.e. killed and subjugated other people and forced them now to become Roman. But this is not that kind of victory. This, this salvation, which is gonna be talked about, is actually about deliverance and rescue for everybody, not subjugation and oppression, but deliverance and freedom. So a Roman person is going to have these ideas rumbling around in their head. A Hebrew person is going to immediately connect the name Joshua, Yeshua, with the first Joshua. In the Old Testament, there's um, this guy called Moses. God uses Moses to deliver the people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt, um, bring them to Sinai, gives them the law. He, um, God, through Moses, brings these people to the threshold of a promised land. He says, I'm going to establish you in this land. You're going to be a new nation and a new people. And through you, everybody in the world is going to be blessed. You're going to be my instrument of blessing and salvation to the nations. But then, he doesn't allow Moses to bring them into the promised land. 
Uh, if you go back and read the biblical story, God trans- transfers the leadership from Moses to someone named Joshua, who's a general in, in the army of Israel. And Joshua then, with God's blessing, moves into the promised land, subdues the enemies of Israel, and he establishes God's people in the land. And so when a Jewish person hears about the beginning of a new kind of imperial victory that brings good news through a Joshua, that's a, all these triggers are going off in their mind. This is a great victory that is going to be led by a new Joshua. And this new Joshua is going to do for God's people what Moses, who's often connected to the law and God's commands, could never actually do. This new Joshua is somehow going to... Um, has produced a victory which will establish God's people in the promised land and conquer the enemies that threaten them. And then there's a title that gets attached to this new Joshua. The title is Christos. When people sometimes hear Jesus Christ, they think that's his like given name. But the, the, his name is Yeshua, uh, G- Jesus, the Christ, or the Christos. Christos in Greek means anointed one. From the Hebrew, uh, Mashiach, which means anointed one. And again, really, really loaded term. It's a really, it's, it's, it's a term that's embedded with a huge amount of meaning. A number of people are anointed by God in the Old Testament to lead, but there's one person who kind of, after their anointing, kind of gets held up as the ultimate anointed one. And they get held up as a kind of paradigm or symbol of a greater coming anointed one which is re- who's really going to usher in a golden age for Israel. Does anyone know who I'm talking about? He was a king. David. David is kind of held up in scripture, in the Old Testament at least, as kind of the pent-ultimate anointed one. In uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, when David is anointed, it says that, that um, um, when Samuel anoints David, that the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, rushes upon David and anoints him for, uh, for kingship in Israel. And under David's leadership, in general, Israel flourishes. They come into a, a new kind of level of prosperity and power and, and flourishing that no one had, certainly the nation hadn't experienced before. God, through David, kind of ushers in a reign that's kind of a golden age for God's people. It comes very close to the way things should be as God originally intended for the nation of Israel under David, under this anointed one. So think about what Mark is doing now. It's the beginning of the gospel of a new Joshua who's also a new anointed one. So if you're, if you're a first century Jew, this is really setting up something significant. You're saying, okay, this is someone who has a victory that's on the same scale as the Roman emperor and Caesar, he's a new Joshua, which would be pretty impressive in and of itself, but he's also at the same time a new David. And somehow in his person, all of these three major, this great military commander who's doing more than anyone could ask or imagine, I mean, this is really, really, this is someone that human history hasn't encountered yet. I mean, this is, there's no, it's hard to come up with a descriptor. Um, and so what Hebrew people would do, they wouldn't use um, titles or names so much, what they would do is they would do these word pictures. Like, this person is so amazing, they're like an Elijah who is to come, or they're like a Moses who is to come. And this is someone who's a new Joshua, and he's a new David. And in his person, these two kind of symbols of God's power and blessing 
um, are, are coming together. And if all of those weren't enough, if, if all of those things weren't kind of stacking and moving together and being layered on each other in this opening line, Mark ends his sentence with one more title for this Jesus. There's one more he gives him, and he says, he is the uh, weos tutheo, the son of God. Weos tutheo in the Greek, son of the God or son of God. This is the one that might be the most shocking to first century readers, the least shocking for us. In our context, the only person really who's talked about, even just culturally, is the son of God, is Jesus. There's no other person claiming that title. Um, even people who aren't believers, aren't Christians, they kind of know Jesus. One of his major titles is called the son of God. So we th- again, we think of it as a religious term, and we think about it primarily just associated to Jesus. It's one of Jesus, you know, Jesus is the good shepherd. Um, and he, you know, one of, the, one of his titles theologically that's really important is that he's the son of God. And that's totally, totally true. But we tend to think of it as simply another religious title that we give to Jesus to talk about how he is like really, really important and he's God's son. But during the decades that preceded Jesus up to over Jesus's entire life, and in the decades to follow where Mark is writing the Gospels, he's writing about 30 to 40 years after Jesus has been resurrected, there was another weos tutheo. There was another person who claimed the title Son of God. And it was a pretty important person because the person in that context who claimed the title weos tutheo was the Roman Emperor Caesar. Caesar, the person who was ultimately in charge of the Roman Empire, the great emperor himself was called Weos Tutheo. You can study history. You can go into uh, inscriptions. In, uh, they were on um, pillars, statues, uh, celebratory um, festivals were held in his honor. Where does this come from? Um, about four decades before Jesus is born, you have this guy you've probably all heard about if you, if you paid attention in English class, Julius Caesar. He's killed, and his stepson Augustus um, becomes the new emperor. And what Augustus does is he says, I saw the spirit, the life force, we would, you might say, but really the spirit. I saw the spirit of Julius Caesar ascending to heaven. And that means that the Roman gods have lifted Caesar into godhood. That means that we can no longer talk about Julius Caesar as simply a great emperor. He was a god. He's been made a god. He now shares equal status with all the other Roman gods in the Roman pantheon. He's been high and exalted and lifted up. That was my, that was my stepdad. So I guess that makes me son of a god. So Augustus begins this pattern where beginning with himself and then for all of his successors, the Roman emperor is a son of a god because when Augustus dies, the next emperor says, hey, guess what? Augustus was, has been divinized too. He, he's been made divine. And that makes me the son of a god. And so to call someone the son of god was kind of like the, the highest honor you could ever give to anybody 
But in the first century, the only person who could claim it was the emperor. Only the emperor was the son of God. That was a title that no one else could share. And it was used in all kinds of manipulative ways. We'll find out about that as we go through Mark. Uh, It was used in a lot of propaganda to say, this is part of why you need to honor the emperor in all things. Because he's not just a great man. He actually shares divinity. He's the son of a god. So his words have a different kind of authority in your life than if he was just an emperor. This is someone seriously, seriously important. He's more than a man. And that means Rome is more than just your average empire. This is the apex of history and civilization. And that means that in all your ways, in all your thinking, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, you do it all to the glory of the emperor, the son of God. And as as Rome's empire grew in the decades leading up to Jesus, during Jesus' life, Rome continues to expand. It continues to become more powerful. Roman emperors continue to talk about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Look at how much peace we've established. We have the largest empire where the word of the emperor gets carried out in faithfulness and in obedience. Um, What slowly begins to happen is you have the rise of something called the imperial cult where the emperor is divine, yes, but then it's not too long before, within a few decades, there are ways in which the empire says, you can totally believe whatever you want to believe. Everyone has lots of gods, that's totally fine. Our only recommend, or not, sorry, we're not recommendation, our only requirement is as a subject in, of Rome, as a citizen of Rome, you can worship whatever gods you want. We, we're pretty progressive as, a, as an empire goes. But there's one God that you have to add to your pantheon. You have to add one God, and that's the emperor. So when you're saying prayers to your God, one or many, doesn't matter, but you also say a prayer to Caesar. When you give thanks, when you're offering, when you're pledging your allegiance of who you ultimately hold, you can, have, you can honor lots of gods, but you must honor the weas tutheo. You must honor the Son of God along with them. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene, this emperor cult is kind of already in, in a pretty full swing. There's kind of games that are dedicated to celebrating the emperor. And he's just one of now many gods which people are being asked to worship and give their ultimate allegiance to. To live as a Roman citizen or anyone under the authority of Rome as, um, as someone who is um, worthy of their ultimate allegiance and ultimate affections. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. That's a very, very short introduction to Mark. It's a very short introduction to the layering of those words. But can you begin to see how very, very edgy that opening line is? That's a very provocative, and you're soon going to discover it's a very dangerous opening line when you are trying to point people towards Jesus. Mark doesn't waste any time in saying, I need to show you someone who is, this is gonna turn the world upside down. Maybe right side up. But this is someone that no one has, you, you can't ignore this person. 
whatever the archetype in your mind of the, gr- the greatest glorious hero of the faith, whether as a Roman it's, it's, it's the emperor, whether as a Jew it's, it's a Moses or Joshua figure, a Davidic figure, this is someone who surpasses all of them. And, you know, spoiler alert for the rest of the gospel and the book of Acts, do you see what, when you're getting into stuff like this, when you're starting to write things like this and saying, oh, I know you've heard about good news from the Son of God. I've got better good news from actually the real Son of God. Do you, are you beginning to understand why a lot of Christians very early on spent a lot of time in jail? And why many of them were tortured to death in some pretty horrific ways by emperors like Nero in the 60s and the 70s and beyond. Because, you know, just this one little tiny book of Mark, it's a very, it's the shortest gospel, it's a very, very small book. This was dynamite in the first century. I mean, this was, this was dangerous stuff. It was dangerous to take it to heart. It was dangerous to circulate it. It was dangerous to teach out of it. In his opening line, Mark is framing the person and message of Jesus around an unmistakable theme, and that theme is insurrection. An insurrection is a violent overthrow of an established government or an established power, an established authority. And as we're going to discover, Mark is saying there is something, something has happened, a victory has happened that is so significant, it's going to overturn and overthrow all the authority structures we presume that makes the world go round, all the people that we think are powerful, it's, it's going to lay waste to that. All of kind of these, the, the ambitions of an empire or even the ambitions of a, of, a, of a Jewish nation, those have to be completely rethought because of who this Jesus is and because of what he's done. Jesus overturning the tables at the temple is not the only thing Jesus overturned in his ministry. That's the last, most graphically symbolic one, but all the time, with, through what he does in miracles, through what he says, he is overturning and taking back creation and people and what matters to God in the face of powers, some Jewish, some Roman. We're gonna see Jesus confront both. But this is a charged, electric, powerful book. Mark wants to point us towards Jesus and say, this person is of such magnitude that everything we've assumed about the way the world works and the kind of the telos, the goal and purpose of life has to be completely rethought through. And I don't even care whether you're a God-fearing Jew or whether you're a stone-cold pagan. You're, everyone's in the same boat before this Jesus. Everything needs to be overthrown. But Mark tips us off to something very, very early on. He says, but don't worry, because what this new Joshua, what this new David, what this new imperial authority brings is good news. It's something profoundly and deeply good for everyone. Let's pray. God, as we move into Mark and his gospel, um, you, we believe um, Mark wrote these words as he was carried along by your Holy Spirit, that his words are ultimately your words, God. The, the, these are inspired by 
by the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we would ask that as we read and study these words together as individuals, small groups, as a church, would you, um, would you do whatever you have to do to help us to, to just remove all the, the, the false layers that, that, we've, that we come to the text with so that we can see it in a much more raw and, um, and subversive way, that it would strike us in ways that, um, yeah, maybe destabilize us, maybe push us off balance a little bit, but in ways that force us to say, oh, I want, I, the, I, I kinda, I wanna go back into knowing who this Jesus is in a way that is, uh, is maybe different and fresh. Would you do whatever you need to do in our hearts to make that happen, God? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.